This is Tending Seeds, a podcast about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm Sarah Schuster, and I'll be your host. Thanks for being here today. Hey, y'all. I hope this finds you well. I am so excited to be bringing you our very first Tending Seeds interview today. I had been planning to start doing interviews back in January. (laughs) That was sort of my 2020 plan was that we would start having pretty regular interviews every month or so here. But you know, the year just hasn't gone how I thought it would in a lot of different ways. But I am so relieved to say better late than never, right? So for September, your first episode that we're bringing you here is going to be an interview episode. I am so excited for you to hear this. Today's interview is with Shiny from Scrapberry Farm out on the West Coast, and we will be talking about Shiny's transition from their previous career into farming, starting a farm, starting a farm collective, operating a farmer's market, how COVID and this pandemic has impacted all of her efforts this year, and so much more. I'm so thrilled. It was a great interview and great to talk to Shiny. I don't want to delay very much, so we're going to jump into it pretty quickly. Uh, One quick announcement I do want to make is that I always say if you want to support the show and help me keep doing this, you know, there's a lot of time that goes into these episodes, especially now editing interviews and stuff as well. You can support the show either by purchasing herbal products from the farm at foxandelder.com or by joining our community on Patreon where we have lots of great bonus information and stuff for you. I have added a $2 a month level for folks. Uh, Some people told me that they wanted to support the show, but they didn't necessarily want to receive the full moon zines every month. So if you're not interested in getting a zine in the mail from me every month for the full moon, but you do still want to support the show, you can now do that for as little as $2 a month. You will still be part of our community over on Patreon. Everyone in the community also gets a 10% discount in our online farm store for all of our herbal products that we make. So yeah, it's a great deal all around. I super appreciate everyone's support. Thank you so much. And I really hope you enjoy this interview with Shiny from Scrapberry Farm. Shiny is a queer Black farmer living on the unceded lands of Indigenous peoples in the place now called Portland, Oregon. She describes herself as a farmer, cottage witch, medicine maker, and a decolonizer. She is originally from Oakland, California. So Shiny, I met you when we were both attending the same herbalism school, I think about a year ago. So I'd love to start there. Could you talk maybe a little bit about what first drew you to herbalism and then what also motivated you to start an herb farm? Yeah, absolutely. So I think finding herbs and farming at all was was really a fluke and was definitely not expected. I think if you you go back to tiny, shiny times, you know, when I'm a kid and you ask the people around me, like, does this kid grow up to be a farmer? Everyone is going to look at you really strangely and say no. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I had a really fractured relationship with the land, um, which is something that a lot of Black people in this country have. And I had this really sort of phobic reaction to ever having dirt on my hands. And it, it really was like this awkward series of behaviors that I developed around this thing where I was so uncomfortable with dirt or soil or anything that I perceived to be <clears throat> really kind of natural in that way. 
And at the same time, I had this intense desire as a kid to grow something. So these things really played off of each other in strange ways. And I just spent so much time as a kid poking little sunflower seeds and carrot seeds down into this patch of dirt behind my house in Oakland and uh, willing something to grow. And they never really grew because there wasn't anything great there. And then I never tried again. So from the time I was a little kid until, you know, I was in my late 30s, I didn't try to grow anything. And then it was just a sort of fluke that I found a medicine making class that was happening in the back of a tiny like witchcraft um, supply store here in Portland, Oregon. And they have a little bitty kitchen in the back. And there was a woman named Jenny who was teaching medicine making classes there. So I just started going to them and I did what a lot of us do. I kept going because I liked the people and it was a really small group of like five to seven, uh, mostly women and some non-binary folks who would come over and over every month and we would just talk about these things we were learning and none of us had any experience with plants or herbs or growing anything and I was just so captivated by the ability to take these sort of disparate ingredients and bring them together into something that we called medicine or a remedy or help or care or love or any of the the words we could use to describe making something that is intended to heal or support. And, you know, I just loved it so much. So then I went to the Portland Plant Medicine Gathering, and that's a a really large herbal medicine and herbal practitioner conference that happens annually here in Portland and got swept up into the world of talking to clinicians and indigenous healers and all of the folks who come out to the Portland Plant Medicine Gathering. And I had a lot of problems with some elements of the gathering in that there can be a lot of white supremacy culture that shows up in these spaces and a lot of erasure of sort of ancestral and traditional ways of knowing and healing. And as I was wandering around this conference, having those conversations with people like, does this feel a little weird to you? It feels a little weird to me. I started finding like-minded people. And as I found some of those people, they invited me to have other conversations about herbs and plants and healing with them. And I was so intrigued by all of these different little experiences that I was having that I went back to putting seeds in the ground again. And so for the first time since I was a kid, I just started trying to grow herbs and have conversations with plants and see what they were telling me. And I just kept doing that for a whole year in my front yard and really, really loved it. So I enrolled in an online herbal school, which is where you and I met in a Facebook forum. And I've just been kind of trundling along ever since. And a little over a year ago, I joined a farming program here in Portland run by a group called Mudbone Grown. Um, And it was the Pathways to Farming program for beginning farmers of color. And so I am in my second season of a three season program where you learn how to farm with other beginning farmers of color who generally have, you know, fewer than three seasons, five seasons of growing experience total. And things have been cruising. We put together a farm collective with a couple people, and I'm sure we'll talk about that some more, and started farming on a couple of acres um, out here. And I just have been going ever since. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. I've had some similar experiences at 
herbal conferences, even as a white person, just looking around going, where, you know, where is the not whitewashed herbal history here? Why aren't we talking about, you know, where this knowledge comes from? Why do all of the presenters look like me? And I've had to make that call for myself that I'm not going to attend conferences like that anymore that don't actually touch on these things and have diversity in who's uh, speaking and presenting. Um, but sadly, that that takes away a lot of conferences. Um, but I am glad to hear some of these conversations happening and seeing some change start. But yeah, it sounds like you have found some really great programs and community where you are out in Oregon. So that's really great to hear. And then, so can you talk a little bit about your farm and just sort of like how much land you're farming, what kind of things you're growing right now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm farming on a little island here, um, right? It's really part of Portland called Wapato Island. And it is the ancestral lands of the indigenous folks from here, the Wapato folks um, and some other nations. And we were really lucky to come upon what's right now a two acre parcel, but we have pretty much infinite room to grow. We met a family who lives there on the island and they have 120 some acres and it's really not their their interest to take up farming, but they wanted to see the land being used in some way. And so we've been able to work out some creative land agreements where um, they're very generously subsidizing my access to the land along with two other farmers of color. And so, yeah, we're on two acres right now. And I would guess that within the next season or two, we'll probably be doubling that as we get more infrastructure on this, the, the space. You know, putting up an herb drying barn takes away from growing space and putting up high tunnels is a form of growing space, but takes space out of your field. So I'm sure that we'll be growing in some fashion there. We got the land just this past April, in mid-April, and as you know, and anyone else who um, grows or produces things on the land, mid-April is a terrible time to be starting a farm um, because you're just going to be behind forever. So <laughs> I am, first of all, growing my resilience and my patience as I learn to just be behind on everything. <laughs> and because we're on an island, the, the land is really interesting because our farm is essentially 20 feet below sea level. So we're learning to work with the water table out there and learning really what the soil needs. And for us, that involves a lot of talking to the land and talking to the plants and just listening um, for the cues that you get back about what's needed. So the space that we're on right now had been a vegetable farm and a poultry farm in the past. And so in some ways we have really beautiful soil in whole parts of the field and um, anywhere that there had ever been a bird, we have some, some really lovely soil. But also when it was a vegetable farm, those folks left pretty abruptly as I understand it. And they left a ton of root crops in the field. So we are growing endless sort of mustard plants that we didn't necessarily set out for. Um, and so we're constantly digging up, we call them our woody babies, just these <laughs> giant woody turnips um, that are out there. I mean, hundreds of them. It's, it's, 
is ludicrous how many have just been growing because it's been fallow for a couple of years. And so they've just been going to seed and growing and going to seed and growing. But intentionally on the farm, we've got part of the farm is in production for CSA and the Farm Collective and my farming partner from Chalchi Farm um, is growing quite a number of CSA shares out there. And so that's really exciting and beautiful to watch coming together. And, you know, whenever you're involved in feeding people, it's just such a, a complete cycle of sort of community inputs and outputs. And it's, it's really rewarding and fulfilling to, to be even a little part of supporting that endeavor. And then a whole large part of our farm is a medicine wheel. And so is dedicated to hosting ceremony um, and all sorts of healing activity and healing space. And so that's got a huge medicine garden, a bunch of which is earmarked to support some of the uh, canoe journey elders that live here in the Pacific Northwest, some indigenous folks. And then down at the end of the farm that we call Scrapberry Farm or that we call my farm, I am slowly converting it into my best approach at a, you know, a no-till farm, which is a little challenging with the, the pre-existing brassicas and mustard friends there. But right now I'm growing a ton of peppers. I just love to grow peppers all the time. So of course, growing cayenne um, for making medicine, but also I'm growing a huge number of African-American heritage peppers this year that have been super exciting to get to know. I wasn't familiar with them before. One of the things that COVID has really shaped, the pandemic has really shaped in my farm, is that I've just started growing things that I would never have planned to grow for, you know, sort of larger scale production. When we got the land in April, I wasn't prepared. I had been farming um, as part of my farm program on a, an eighth of an acre on the side of a hill in a rural part um, about 45 minutes outside of Portland. And so I kept very limited things in seed that I was planning to plant out there because it's not a lot of space. And all of a sudden I had access to two acres to plant a ton of stuff. And I really had to just start throwing seeds in the ground that were either donated to me or maybe I had purchased to try to grow at home in my little food garden because I've really never been a food grower. I just have been practicing these last couple of years at growing medicinal herbs. And so I had learned about these African-American heritage peppers and was able to connect with Owen at True Love Seeds to get some of those. Mm-hmm. And there are these peppers that have these beautiful stories behind them. And that's, that's such a beautiful thing to be a part of. I'm also very clearly growing just forage for deer. <laughs> so the deer have been enjoying the African-American heritage pepper flowers quite a lot. I'm also growing a ton of beans. And likewise, I had never tried to grow beans before. And I'm absolutely loving growing beans. They are quirky and fascinating. And any package that tells you it's a bush bean is a lie because they all need support. <laughs> but I've been growing these really um beautiful black beans and pinto beans and wax beans and green beans. And so I've been able to make some contributions towards the CSA with that produce, but also, you know, bringing a lot of that home because I'm farming full time now. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really working on offsetting places in my budget that used to be held up by having a full time, you know, salaried job. And so I'm feeling this amazing, 
uh, satisfaction and, you know, reward at everything I'm eating that I grew because it used to just be such a casual thing to go out to eat or order something in, you know, in these times. And it's really not that casual anymore. <laughs> uh, and then I'm growing all of the medicinal herb friends, you know. I have a particular love for lemon balm and for tulsi. I'm growing lots and lots of sage, tons of California poppy. I think that because I'm originally from California, there are times when I try to keep and cultivate relationships with some of the plants that I grew up seeing as a kid, even though they may not be especially native here to the Pacific Northwest. So tons of lemon verbena. I was gifted a beautiful second year lemon verbena plant by one of our farmer's mothers this season. Um, and so that plant has just taken off and is great and beautiful and bushy. I am trying my hand at growing some lime balm this year, which I hadn't been familiar with before, but it is, it is taking off uh, like a mint plant does. <laughs> and so that's really, really great. I grow a lot of plants for anxiety. Um, so a lot of the plant friends that I keep around me are sort of citrusy and uplifting because I'm also allergic to citrus. So I love anywhere I can get a plant that that sort of fakes that experience for me. And things that, you know, are really helping to, to ground and support in these wacky, anxious times we're having. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's... Yeah, thinking about just the the things I've been making for clients this year, definitely dealing with stress, anxiety is is a huge theme for everyone in 2020. So, yeah, it sounds like you have such yeah. such an abundance of things growing there, and that you've got a really beautiful community. And I know land access is you know one of the primary hurdles that most of us deal with as aspiring farmers. So that's amazing that you've you know, found that with your neighbors as well to hopefully be able to expand in future seasons. That's really incredible. Yeah, you know, I, I've been saying this thing that I, that I think fits here. And it's just that, you know, we talk a lot about access. So like you were saying, land access is such a critical hurdle for beginning farmers or for really any farmers much of the time. Uh, but I'm really seeing that, you know, access without support is, is not an opportunity. And I see these programs starting to come online that are really thinking about land access, but I'm, I'm, I'm just so aware because I've been given the opportunity to check it out, you know, that farming programs are vital and necessary. And so I just want to put that out there for folks. Whenever you have a chance to talk to somebody who has influence in politics, the legislature, putting together nonprofit farming programs, all of that. Like, I just want to help people understand how vital that is and how much that's tied to this idea of access to land, because what it means to be farm ready is a huge amount of stuff that I don't think anybody, unless you grew up on a farm, you really don't know all of the things that go into it. So I'm just going to be out there forever plugging to people like we have to get more beginning farmer programs, especially beginning farmer programs for farmers of color, but really for all sorts of folks that we don't traditionally see represented in farming on the land here. Like I really want to see farm programs and, you know, herb schools and things of that sort that are coming in to support people in those ways and knowing that, you know, right, like those aren't 
accredited higher education programs for the most part. So they're not the kind of thing people really get financial aid for. Means that we have to be thinking socially and communally about how to fund people and getting that support. So I just want to make that plug because it's so important. Yes, (laughs) a thousand percent. Yes, I think everyone has this sort of romanticized notion about farming being this, you know, this solitary endeavor, but it really does take community help and support. And especially at, you know, the onset at the beginning, yeah, just even having land isn't enough. There's so much else that goes into that and it can be a really difficult hurdle to overcome. And I mean, I know so many businesses, you know, I was in restaurant management before this and looking into starting restaurants. There are plenty of businesses, restaurants, farms included that just not having enough capital to keep them going at, you know, the beginning, you know, they're starting to get their feet out from under them. And then they just, you know, run out of cash, run out of the things they need to keep the, the farm or other business going. And so I think having a good incubation program, having a good community support system, it's so vital to, to have that in place because it can feel like when you're out there, you know, trying to grow things, it can feel like it's just you and the land, you know, trying to do your thing, but it really does take more than that to, to be successful. So you mentioned that you transitioned this year to being a full-time farmer. So I, I've been able to see that through your social media and see, you know, what you were doing before, but could you talk maybe about what work were you doing before this? How did you decide that this year, 2020 of all years, was the year to go all in on farming and maybe talk about what that transition has been like, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners, you know, maybe are thinking about that themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So before I was farming full-time, I spent 13 years in higher education as a librarian and a teacher in community colleges. And, you know, as I described, I'd been farming, gardening, growing part-time for the last couple years there. But I was really, uh, I was struck with the need to to really make the transition a, a permanent thing A couple of years ago, I went to a workshop that was for faculty and staff of color in higher education. And at the end of the workshop, the presenter, the facilitator asked us this question, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And every day, every day I woke up and asked myself this question again. And the question was, if you simply accepted that white supremacy would never end in your lifetime, what would you do with your precious life force? And I think that, right, not everybody spends all of their time thinking about white supremacy, and I don't expect that of people. But whatever the thing is, whatever that large, weighty, heavy thing is that you are holding every day that has this great importance, you know, asking yourself if you found a way to accept that you are probably not the thing that will will make the big change. And that's really hard to hear because we are, we are so conditioned to be highly individualistic and we're all trained to, you know, we have to save everything. Um, but if you just let go of that pressure, what would you do with your life force? And I just, I couldn't shake that question. And I started to realize, you know, I was cruising into being 40 at the time. And I was starting to realize that life was not going to get longer. You know, I was just losing a little bit every single day. And I was going to this job that was really important. Community colleges are tremendously important. And I will say that forever. 
but I was losing pieces of me every single day that I was going there. The institution that I was working for is the largest institution of higher education in the state of Oregon. So very, very large machine. And even when you believe wholly in the mission of a machine, machines grind people up. That's, that's what they're there to do in a lot of ways. And so I was worn down and ground up and burned out. And in addition to that, I had been experiencing and struggling with chronic illness and chronic pain for a really long time. And so I was hurting inside and outside. At the time, I started having these dialogues with plants that I was describing, you know, that I found myself at an herb nerd conference and I was hanging out in tiny magic stores making medicine and realizing that those experiences and then getting into the farm program and really taking on farming in earnest, I was realizing that those experiences were rebuilding me in a very important way and that I was starting to feel more whole and more in my body than I had in a very, very long time. And so this question that I couldn't shake combined with understanding that working the land was healing me in these very, very important ways started to become this conversation with myself. And it just became inevitable. And so I made the decision along with the folks that, you know, really support me and show up for me in life to make this transition. At the time I decided to make this transition, there were lots of things I totally did not know were going to happen in life. So I didn't know that we were going to go into a global pandemic. (laughs) Absolutely. And so that, you know, that has definitely shaped and impacted what this transition was going to be like. And I didn't know that some changes were going to happen in my personal life. And so, you know, I've been really rearranging my relationships in the world. And part of that has meant that my my relationship with my wife has been changing and we will be separating. And so I mentioned that just to tell people that When you decide to make a very big change in your life, hopefully that happens because you're having these conversations with yourself and you're feeling really connected to your sense of knowing. And that doesn't mean you know everything that's going to happen by any means, but you're ready to go on this big adventure because you understand some part of yourself. And when you let that energy in, that that change brings a lot of stuff with it, right? And you can't prepare for all of it. So I never want to give anyone the idea that you can sit down and prepare for every facet of what is going to happen. You want to do a lot of preparation. Don't get me wrong. It is, it is not a light decision to make to just change your whole world in this way. Um, but you can't prepare for everything. You can't plan for everything. You can't plan for a pandemic. You can't plan for changes that happen in your personal life. You can't necessarily plan for when the land shows up and is ready. We had been hunting for land for, you know, four or five, six months, really in earnest. And we didn't know it would happen then. And then we didn't know that it would take us two and a half months to agree on a lease when you're trying to do creative stuff, you know, so things will happen when they happen and you have to sort of be ready to jump and you definitely don't want to do it alone. So I think that that's also an important piece of making that transition is figuring out what it means for you to have supports. And for me, it has meant being vulnerable in some ways that frankly are really uncomfortable. Like it's hard for me to be doing brand new things, And every day I learn 10 things I didn't know enough about. 
and have 15 things I would have done differently, you know, and that's, that's humbling, I think, also in a very, very healthy way. And it's also hard to let go of having been an expert, you know, when I was working in libraries, I was on a national speaking circuit much of the time I was doing big library association conference life. And now I am one of many farmers who are struggling every day, but also having tiny rewards every day. And it's a different experience altogether. And yeah, I think that word humbling has just really been kind of a lot of what the ride has been like. And also with with so much very sweet gratitude to the people who have shown up to support. And some of that support is what I call a part of the opportunity crisis paradigm of the pandemic itself, because for the first time in a very, very long time, mainstream folks in this country are worried about where their food is going to come from. And that has really shaped people's investment along with sort of the national discourse on race and police brutality has really, really shaped people's willingness to contribute to farms of color that are launching. And we are definitely not the only black and brown owned or led farm that's launching in our, our area right now. I, I know of a ton of those folks who are, who are getting out there and who are experiencing the same sort of impacts of, of this opportunity and crisis paradigm. And, and, you know, I think for folks who are thinking about making a transition, it's also going to be thinking about what are those big global pressures that are happening? You know, we can't account for everything. And obviously we don't know when the pandemic is going to happen again, or what's going to happen with the one that we are experiencing right now. But trying to ask yourself about more than just farming on a patch of land somewhere, but what do you know of what the world is going to look like in the next five to 10 years? What do you know about what your body is going to look like in the next five to 10 years? Something that I've really been thinking about a lot, making this transition as a person who is in her early 40s, you know, with a body that has a lot of chronic illness and pain is, what does my plan look like Mm -hmm. for being able to keep this body doing this work on the land. And for me, that means that I've had to be very intentional and thoughtful about the equipment I'm investing in up front, you know, finding things that really extend my ability and that are more accessible or perhaps more ergonomic, any number of, you know, ways to kind of modify the actions that we do repetitively on on the land, which I know that you know about also. And so it really is sort of a whole life scan that goes into making this sort of transition. And I think most people who have, have made that sort of transition would, would say so. I don't know. What was it like for you? It's been interesting. I still haven't fully transitioned. I do still work a part-time off-farm job a few days a week. Uh, I, I make soap for a, a local business here in town a couple days mm-hmm. a week at their facility. But yeah, this transition has definitely been interesting. This year as a whole has been very interesting. I'm in my late 30s and I've been very hard on my body my whole life. And so these past three or so years, I have been dealing with, you know, daily chronic pain, which I know you mentioned as well. And so trying to figure out, you know, kind of looking at the long game, like you were just saying of like, well, how do I, how can I, how can I make sure I keep farming for, you know, planning to do this for, you know, the foreseeable future. So we're talking hopefully a couple decades. 
at least of farming and how can I do this and not make things worse for my body and hopefully even perhaps make them better, which I do feel like I've been doing. I was actually going to ask you about that when you said that you deal with chronic pain as well, is that there, for me, there's something about the satisfaction and the joy that it brings me to be growing you know, medicinal herbs for folks, as well as, you know, vegetables for us to eat here in the household. I find that even on, you know, the hard days, somehow, I don't know, the pain, it's just a different sort of pain, if that makes any sense. I was wondering, like, what is your experience Mm -hmm. with that? Yeah, it is. It is a different sort of pain, right? Like, okay, pain hurts. We we can all (laughs) accept that part. But there's... You know, when your life is constructed around going in a building, sitting in a chair, standing on a mat at a sink all day, whatever it is, the thing that you do in the building, when you go out into the rest of your life and you experience this very grating pain, it it really wears you down emotionally and spiritually, if that's a way that you conceive of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you are asking your body to do labor, in whatever way it is that you're able to ask your body to do that labor, I think it transforms the pain, right? Like, so the pain's still there. It doesn't necessarily stop hurting. Although for some people, right, that that increased mobility is going to enable something to stop hurting as much. But, you know, doing work doesn't actually make pain go away, but it does transform your experience of it, exactly. I think. Um, and so I find that it's it's bittersweet because there's a reward in there and there's this ability to every day say to myself, Hey, look, this body is still doing the best that it can. And the best that this body can do makes medicine and the best that this body can do feeds you. And that's, that's a huge, that's a huge thing to get. That's a tremendous gift in this life. I think. I totally agree. And there's just something about, you know, even on the hardest days on the farm where it's, you know, so hot and I'm, you know, I have knee and back problems. And so I can't even squat down. So I'm like hinging at the waist, which I know is like terrible. Um, But even after I've been out there weeding for like four or five hours, and it's just so hot, and I'm exhausted. There's just this different sense in my in my heart in my spirit when I come back inside of just like how I feel about how I spent my day versus some of the other jobs I've done, you know, teaching middle school or doing like restaurant management, all jobs where I was like on my feet running around all day that were very, you know, tiresome, but I was still, you know, in air conditioning and in a decent situation. And just somehow there's just, I think that sense of satisfaction, like it transforms that pain a little bit for me to where, you know, not that it doesn't hurt, but that I'm not dreading getting up the next day to go do it again. That's for sure. Which is a really nice Mm -hmm. change. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with you that that lack of dread is, (laughs) is a big part of the transition that, you know, is, is telling me I, I made the right choice, even though, you know, quite honestly, I spend a little bit more time stressed out about money than I used to. And I spend a different amount of time fixating on calendars and how time itself even works. You know, it used to be about punching someone else's clock and constantly thinking about time. And now I'm thinking about how I just really wish I had started these plants four weeks earlier. <laughs> oh, are, are you reading my mind as I think about the fall plants I need to get going here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> We're going to um, get there. 
<laughs> we totally will. Uh, what has that been like? Have you found any good techniques for yourself in terms of just that transition to quote, punching your own clock, like you said, and, and finding that motivation when no one else is like, no one is going to know if you don't show up and get your stuff done. Right. So like, how has that transition been for you? Well, so I also have a, a part-time off-farm job. I manage a BIPOC farmer's market in Portland. Mm -hmm. And so that, that plus farm really does require me to be intentional about my time. And I've been trying a couple of different experiments. I'm very much approach things a little scientifically. So I've been trying some experiments to see what works the best. I was experimenting with nap times for a while but that got really challenging. But the hope there was, well, maybe if I get up really early and get a bunch of farm work done, then I come in when it's really nasty hot out and take a nap. And then after that, I do medicine making or market planning or, you know, other things that need to happen. Mm -hmm. But the napping experiment was a wash that that one didn't really <laughs> pan out. It just left me feeling sleepy for the rest of the day. I have the same problem. Works. I, I like not nap at all. So. <laughs> Yeah, I want it. I want it to work. I like the concept of like, I lay down now and have a rest and I, I get it, but I couldn't quite get that plugged in. Um, so now I really have to tell myself that certain days of the week are for certain things. And obviously, sometimes you have to make a trade or a swap, but I really do my my market runs on Mondays. So I just know that Mondays are for market. And generally, market is super depleting to, to run a manage an incubator farmer's market is, mm -hmm. is a lot of work. And so generally, Tuesdays are for rest, right? Because part of the punching your own clock is that weekends be, become sort of meaningless. So exactly. Yeah, what is a weekend? Because <laughs> I'm generally depleted after the market. And Wednesdays have become kind of a planning and prep day because I really try to be on the farm Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as much as I can maximize the time there. And for us, you know, not living on the farm, the farm is about 20 minutes from my house, like from house to field is 15 to 20 minutes, which is not bad at all. Um, and so I really try to just maximize the time out there because of course I can run back home if I've forgotten something, but those 15, 20 minute trips do add up throughout the day. So I really try to do the prep work on Wednesday, wrap up any meetings that I need to have with people. So for me, calendars have become kind of a critical thing and it's not so much about the hours, the specific hours of the day. You know, I, I don't have a like try to be in the field this many hours a day metric, but just mm -hmm knowing that I have days that are for thinking about the off-farm job, which for me is market, and I have a prep day kind of in the middle so that I'm transitioning from one mental space to a different mental space and trying to set myself up for success there. And then frequently evenings are just kind of about medicine making, or that's the theory. The practice is that I end up staying up super late before I have markets that I'm vending at. And that's a terrible approach. So nobody do that. Don't make medicine until two in the morning and then go sell it at nine o'clock the next morning. That's just a bad deal. But I think the, the thing I do have that works well as a trade-off is that I'm a pretty dutiful note taker. And so I always have my, my sort of medicine book that I keep all of my formula in. 
And that does at least allow me, like I track everything, you know, what did it weigh um, herb by herb when I made, you know, mm -hmm. this oxymel and how many ounces of this and that so that when I'm making, you know, repeat batches of things, I'm able to just get that moving pretty quickly and I don't have to stop and think about every step because I've really just tracked it super well. So note taking has been a big piece of it, plus calendars. And I have learned to say things to people that help me stay on track. And that means that I'm learning to say to people who ask me for something, you know, face to face or mask to mask as it is, um, like, hey, I'm going to need you to put that in an email to me at this address because I have several email addresses between mm -hmm. the farm and the market and the other things. And people often just write you at whichever one they remember for you. And so right. even if they write me and I get it at my farm address, but it's for market, I will actually reply to them and say, I will need you to send this to me at this address because I've got my little system in there for keeping track of everything. And so a big part of the, yeah, the making it go and the organizing is just learning to say to people what I need in order to be able to do what they need. And I don't think we're very conditioned to do that in this country. You know, we really just kind of take it on, shoulder the load, make it work. But I'm, I'm learning to say, hey, let's make this work together. This is what I need. Most definitely. Yeah. And I think this year in particular has been good for people to maybe have to figure out where their own boundaries are for some things because there's just so much going on and, you know, having to set those boundaries for here's what I can emotionally handle. Here's what I can handle in terms of scheduling and my calendar. But yeah, it sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on things, especially with like what you're saying about the note taking for medicine making. And I know just farming in general as well, like having good notes, having those good spreadsheets, however it is you're keeping organized, seems to be one of those critical, you know, make or break pieces for new farmers and new business owners in general is that it's not the sexy side of it. But if you can have those notes and stuff in place to really know, like, here's how long it actually took me to make this product here's what it actually cost me, you know, in terms of ingredients and everything else. I think there's, you don't realize when you first start up a business, you know, just how much there is behind the scenes in terms of labor uh, and cost for things. Um, yeah. I think also, you know, asking for help, like I do have a ton of spreadsheets for the farm um, <laughs> and it, you know, I, it was helpful to me that starting out in an educational program for farmers, it was a requirement that I tracked things in a certain way. And, you know, I've had to go to friends who are spreadsheet jockeys and say, like, this isn't how I really think. Can you help? And so I have a friend who has created all of these base spreadsheets for me that, you know, do fancy math and other things. And I just have to keep making copies of them and plugging things in. And so some of that is just knowing what it is that you naturally like to think about doing and what it is that you don't naturally think about doing. I'd still be sitting there, you know, a year and a half later, trying to make a spreadsheet to do a thing for me. Whereas <laughs> it, it took this person literally 10 minutes. They were like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's easy. And it, you know, it calculates what, what I need to put in my taxes because I drove around for business and, you know, all kinds of stuff that for that person was easy to think about. They're like, I don't know how somebody grows a plant and makes a medicine, but this I do. <laughs> so it's also about relying on what's in your network, you know, so that we're not doing all of it by ourselves. 
Right. Yeah. Again, you know, you mentioned how individualistic most of us are in our society where we just want to, you know, shoulder all the burdens by ourselves. And I think it's so easy to forget that, you know, most of us have a pretty big network of people with a huge variety of skills. And if they're in your life, like they, they should want you to succeed. And most people are really, you know, want to help in any way they possibly can. And so reaching out to folks and say, or even just, you know, posting to your social media, if you're not sure like who has that skill, nine times out of 10, you're going to find someone who can probably step in and save you so much time. And then you can give them a bottle of elderberry syrup or something as a thank you. And and everyone feels good about it. Right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I was going to ask you about, so since we're sort of there now, is just like who else, you don't have to get into specific names, but just like what, what are the other ways that like your community is showing up to support you this year? Oh man, community has just been so great. So, I mean, on the one hand, plainly, community has shown up for me and for us in the farm collective with money. So Mm -hmm. you can never sort of underestimate the value of money. Um, (laughs) And that has been really huge. I was really just floored that some folks donated their entire uh, stimulus check toward my barn fundraiser and some other stuff at the farm, you know, so folks have, because of pandemic life, some folks are finding that they're getting a little bit of money somewhere that they didn't expect and that they're able to just pass that along somewhere. And that's been really, really helpful, but you know, not everybody has money to give um, and that's really understandable. So we have a hearty group of about five volunteers who show up every week, you know, without fail to do work on the farm. One of the places I've had to learn to ask for help is to say, running this market takes a lot of time. I'm not on the farm as much as I need to be. And I need to be able to just leave lists of things and say, hey, can somebody tackle this? Like, you don't have to live in my, you know, weird herb nerd dream and vision to be able to weed everything that's a tiny spindly yellow flower, you know, which is pretty easy to designate in my field. Learning to rely on those folks has been a gift for me because I'm learning how to be more fully a person who can accept help. And that's really important. But also I just have so much gratitude to those those folks who are showing up and doing that. Um, lately, they've been working on seed keeping, which has been really awesome. Um, as we realize a lot of what we're growing this year is actually seed, yeah. which is nice because there's a seed shortage coming. So Almost definitely. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, so you know, true love seeds. I love the work they're doing uh, with seed keeping. And yeah, this year with the pandemic, you know, we saw and we're still seeing, you know, seed shortages because everyone decided they wanted to grow a garden, which is great on the one hand, but <laughs> I think we're in right. some problems with that. And also, <laughs> just to ramble for a second, I saw so many people, you know, every plant sale I went to this year, they were just like cleaned out from people who had never grown anything before that were just buying like hundreds of dollars worth of plants and seeds thinking they were Uh going to grow all the food for their family. And I'm like, or you can find a local farmer, especially a local black or brown farmer to support be probably a way better use of your time and money. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's a little bit like I have friends who are bakers and they're just livid about the time when there was no butter, sugar, flour anywhere. And they're just like, really, really, are you all going to make bread right now? This is the thing you all suddenly know how to do is make bread. Um, And yeah, it's very similar. It's like, if you just left it there, somebody could have made you some bread. 
but right. now you have a bunch of materials that perhaps did not yield what you expected. Um, and so that, that has definitely been a little challenging. So we're, we're growing seed, you know, we'll see how that goes. And then I've had folks who are offering to show up in, in really fascinating ways that are not always what you expect. So I've got people who have offered to help do interfacing with systems, which can be really, really challenging, you know, as a queer black femme, there are just systems of power and money that are intimidating to me. And I'm a generally robustly confident person, but I still get worn down by some of these interactions. So there are people who have volunteered to, you know, read through USDA grant information for me and be like, great, I'll just have a Zoom call with you and break down for you what's going on in this packet of, you know, government speak. And then we can talk about what your goals are for what you need to fundraise or, you know, folks who, yeah, right. Like I had never thought to ask for that, but what a wonderful thing, um, which is super cool. And I, I hope that more folks who are like, oh, hey, I wait through contracts for a living, realize that you have a valuable skill set to put out there for people. So, you know, really unexpected things that come together to support the foundation of launching a farm have come together that way. Um, folks helping me navigate getting my first, you know, business tax accountant and preparer and having people sit down and run through questions with me so that I could get ready for this like Zoom call with, you know, a tax preparer to talk about my businesses. And I wanted to make the most out of the 25 minutes I was going to get. And, you know, so lots of supports like that, that I wouldn't have known to ask for. But how I got there is being vulnerable enough to talk about the experiences I'm having and the places that I'm stressed or anxious or feeling like an imposter, right? There's so much imposter syndrome that comes along with farming and especially with herbalism. And so I'm really grateful for the people who have listened to me talk or tell my stories and been willing to come forward and say, hey, I have this to offer. Is this something you need? has just been tremendous because we don't always know what it is we need. We just know that we need help. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And in both herbalism and farming are both things where no one's going to come and, and hand you that piece of validating paper and say, you're now an herbalist, you're now a farmer, you know, go forth <laughs> since there's no like, you know, regulating body or anything, which I'm glad of, but at the same time, I completely understand, you know, the imposter syndrome and, and wondering, like, do I know enough to do this? And especially because it's a constant journey, you're going to be learning for as long as you keep doing this. Right. And you also mentioned that, you know, you came, your previous job, you, you came from a sense of expertise and having a lot of competence to now, like, starting over with, you know, beginner mind at something. It's a big, it's a big shift for, for sure. <laughs> um, so much. Yeah, it's a huge shift. Um, you mentioned the market that you started this year. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was the driving force that, you know, pushed you to create that? And then, like, what does the market look like? How many, like, farms or vendors do you have? Yeah, totally. So it's called the Come Through Market. And Come Through is sort of Black American slang for, you know, everybody come on out let's party and hang out together. Sometimes in the South, they say fall through, but same idea. Um, so it's a come through market and it is a black and indigenous centered market. I actually started the market last year, but in a really different format. So last year in my first year of the, the Pathways to Farming program, 
for beginning farmers of color. I had the ability to launch, like I called it a farmer's market, but it was at a farm, um, at a very small farm. And so really technically probably a more of a farm stand cooperative. And you get a lot more leeway when you're on a farm selling things. So I didn't have mm -hmm. to think about regulations very much. The farm, because it's attached to a bunch of learning programs, is insured from end to end out the wazoo. So I didn't really have to think about whether vendors needed to have insurance. We weren't really doing hot food, so I didn't have to think about licensing. So I started it last year as a sort of very tiny 10 vendor monthly little BIPOC pop-up market, which was super cute. But also that farm was really off the beaten path. It wasn't well accessed by public transit. And so I wasn't able to actually get shoppers of color out there. And that was really challenging. And we just needed more people. And I was really frustrated because I thought, well, gosh, moving anywhere would require me to have all those things, to have the insurance and to think about regulatory controls and work with the health department and do all of those pieces. So when the season ended, I, I kind of tabled the market and just went back to my job and thinking about other things. And this June, gosh, it was mid-June, Black Food Sovereignty Coalition here in Portland called me and said, hey, Shiny, do you still have that market brand? And I said, yeah, I still have the market brand. I just don't have a market site right now. And also it's a pandemic. Um, <laughs> and here in Oregon, farmers markets are deemed essential in terms of statewide reopening plans. So markets have always been open and Black Food Sovereignty Coalition had been able to get some funding together for launching a market. And I think they called mid-June and she said, great, I can fund you for seven market dates but you have to launch it in June. Oh my gosh. And I, um, wow. June is oh, now. In the growing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. June is now. Yes. And I'm in the middle of growing on the farm. And she said, well, that's, you know, the funding has to, has to be used now. And I said, well, then let's launch a market. So I launched the market by June 29th. So uh, wow. it was a two week, two like weeks. a two week frenzy. <laughs> and so for the first market, I had invited 10 vendors, five showed up. And they sold out of all of their produce in an hour, which was oh, wow. unexpected because at least 600 people came to market. Um, one of the gate counters said there were 1,100 people. That felt a little high or perhaps just the imposter syndrome got the best of me. But I was like, mm -hmm. let's just sort of have this plus a little. We'll call it 600, which seems a, a realistic target because we've had 600 folks at about every market since then. Wow. Um, which has been stunning. I am now up to 24 vendors every market, mm -hmm. which is really fantastic. I have several Black-owned and operated farms that come, um, which is really great. And it's an incubator market. And what that really means is that I get to work with and focus on folks who have really never done this before. And between Black Food Sovereignty Coalition and another organization here called EcoTrust, they've been able to help me gain the funding to, I help my vendors um, pay for insurance. I give them a ton of one-on-one -on -one mentorship and we just talk about their goals and where they're trying to get to, what it is that intrigues them about coming to market. I have been working with just community members to get pop-up tents, coolers, bins, totes, all those sorts of things donated for them. And so I'm able to really 
be a part of providing many of their first experiences at vending in a marketplace. And for some of them, they'll, they'll realize that vending in a farmer's market doesn't work for them. And then I still consider that a success because they didn't have to lose all of that infrastructure startup and overhead to find out. Right. Um, and it can be a lot, you know, when you want to vend at a farmer's market, at a minimum, you're going to be asked for a million dollar liability policy yep. on your business. A lot of the folks that I work with have been sort of flying under the radar with what we call Instagram businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's such a like rewarding job to do. And in this market season so far, so we've had four market dates. I have worked with them to get them. Their businesses are registered with the state now. Many of them have obtained insurance. Some of them are thinking through their sort of tax plans as we speak. I've gotten them workshops from other farmers markets on how to do marketing and branding and displaying their stuff. And so really like the the whole community has shown up to be really, really support supportive. I mean, gosh, we had a a market one day that was in a heat wave. And so I closed the market an hour early, but even at a hundred degrees on the asphalt in a market, we saw 504 people come through to support like black and indigenous farmers and makers and other makers of color, which is just so stunning to have happening right now. So the farmer's market has been a really, really beautiful experience. It too, like everything else, is humbling. Um, I wasn't prepared for all of the exposure that came with it. Mm -hmm. And so every couple of days I'm being asked to do an interview or provide some quotes or be on a panel. And again, in my previous career, I was really accustomed to being an expert speaker but I'm new at this and I, I keep telling people like I am building this plane while I'm flying it y'all. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> being able to show up to the table and speak from a different place from not a place of expertise, but a place of here's the experiences we're having together has been also really rewarding and empowering in ways that I didn't expect. So it's been really cool, but the market is really just about trying to fill some some gaps in how the food the local food system works like there there's a you know if we imagine that there's a scaffold from flying under the radar as an instagram business to getting to a farmer's market to eventually ending up on you know the shelf at your upscale sort of you know hippie food mart like that whole thing is really hard to navigate and to understand what are the steps you have to take to keep moving up the scaffold. And I'm really just trying hard with the come through market to meet vendors and makers and growers where they're at and also have dialogues with those big name markets about making really clear to people what it is they need to mm-hmm to do to meet over there so that I can tell them like, look, I can't rewrite the expectations for you, but we can make it really clear when you move from some market meeting you where you're at to you need to meet them where their expectations are at. And so we're getting a lot of support. And in fact, some of those same types of upscale grocery stores have reached out to also offer support and funding and 
workshops for producers to help them understand, well, this is what it means to sell produce at our store, or this is what it means to, you know, have your tincture in the wellness aisle. Right. So that's, that's what we're doing at the Come Through Market. Yeah, that is fantastic. I mean, it just goes back to what we were talking about at the start of this about, you know, you were talking about the incubator farm programs, but even past that, you know, it's like, well, once you get growing, then like, how do you move forward? How do you deal with the business side of stuff? Mm -hmm. Which for me personally, just because that's not stuff I'm used to dealing with, like, you know, getting the insurance and, and stuff like that. Like it felt really intimidating to me, you know, getting like an EIN number, from the federal government yeah. and, and, you know, there was a kerfuffle, like getting bank accounts set up and just so much to try to work through and deal with. And, you know, every farmer's market in our County, you know, it's a million dollar minimum insurance policy to have. And it, and you've dealt with this, I'm sure too, like when you're dealing with herbal products, like even finding people who will cover your products is like its own, you know, choose your that's own adventure. A nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, it's that's so fantastic that that's what y'all are being able to offer people and help them, you know, like you said, make that jump from starting at your market to then going to larger markets. You said that you all were given funding for seven markets. Is there any indication of, will this be able to continue past seven markets? Yeah, I think so. I have a meeting tomorrow with um, the folks that at Black Food Sovereignty Coalition that I've been working with and also the folks who are donating the venue because the lot that we've been having the market at is beautifully centrally located um, and it's just been donated to us so far the whole time. So we're going to have a meeting tomorrow and talk about what that looks like to extend through, you know, sort of the the temperate months here before uh -huh. we get into the, the deluge of rain. And then there is the opportunity to move the market indoors. That just takes a lot of really careful thinking in terms of, you know, health and wellness protection during the pandemic. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's a whole different layer of things to be considering, but it seems like there's a lot of community support behind it to hopefully make this happen and keep it going. So that's really amazing. I'd love to also talk about- positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm so excited to like, I wish I was closer that I could come, you know, check this market out. It sounds so <laughs> great. You mentioned also that you have a farm collective. Could you talk a little bit, you know, about how that collective was formed and kind of like what sort of support you all give to one another and kind of like the benefits of a farming collective if people don't know what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are three farms in our collective, and the collective is called the Racine Farm Collective. And the farms are my farm, Scrapberry Farm, a farm called Chalchi Farm, and a farm called Flying Dog Heart Farm. And really, I would say the idea of Farm Collective is shared investment and shared risk. So one, I mean, just sort of practically, it's I'm only paying one third of the lease on this land, which is really <laughs> helpful. And I am only writing one third of the, the applications for funding, which is nice. Um, but also we are sharing an investment together. So when we are purchasing infrastructure, when we're paying for figuring out all of the um, irrigation needs and those sorts of things, knowing that you're not on, the, you're not on your own with that but also sharing in the work. And, you know, they have definitely been carrying a lot for me as I've been launching and getting the market up and going and really being able to 
hold each other accountable, I think is a big part of it. So when we were talking about what am I doing to stay organized and keep all of these plates spinning, these other farmers that I work with every day are a huge part of that. And we are in touch um, and talking all day long, even when we're not together on the farm. And so they know when I have goals to get something in the ground. And if they haven't seen me out there, I'm going to get a ping that's like, hey, friend, mm. didn't you want to get this in the ground this week? Do you need help doing that? Or do you just need sort of a kick in the pants? Farming you know, and that's, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like they're baked right into the system. And that's really super helpful. It also means that we have a bigger resource network in terms of figuring things out and problem solving and getting access to the kinds of folks I was talking about before who might show up to help you plan something that's really easy for them or help you work your way through a system that you're not familiar with navigating. So these farmers bring, right, their partners and their families also to the operation. So where in my life, it's really just me most of the mm -hmm. time, I am now also farming with children, which is really different, but is super rewarding and helps me learn all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't have access to otherwise. And I'm farming with elders. We have parents who come out and help with things. And that's really, really rewarding and gives me a whole new perspective that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. So in our farm network of partners, we have chemists and all sorts of folks who come to the table and have a, a tremendous wealth of knowledge and skills to share. And so just, you know, everything gets exponentially bigger, which means that everything gets easier and also that there's that much more communicating that you have to do because you have to make sure that everyone's sort of tracking on what's going on. But we all met... Well, we all met prior to being in the farming program, but we've all been in the farming program together, uh, the Pathways to Farming program. And one of us has since graduated out um, and launched, you know, their own stuff really in earnest in a big way. And they're doing garden consulting now in the pandemic and all sorts of cool things. And two of us are still in the farming program together um, and putting together the last sort of looking at the last season of being in that program and what what the, our goals for that look like. But we all met variously in community, some of us at that plant medicine conference that I had gone to. So one of those folks was someone I had wandered into the, the vendor hall and had this conversation about my misgivings about some of the culture around me at the conference. And that person was like, hey, you need to come spend more time with me in community. And so that was the person who encouraged me to apply for the Pathways to Farming program because even then I was overtaken by imposter syndrome and thought, I don't even know enough to go to, to you know, farming school for mm -hmm. beginners. Um, mm -hmm. And they were like, that's ridiculous. Get out there. And when I still <laughs> didn't apply, they fundamentally submitted my application for me by calling the program leader and saying, whoops, shiny missed the deadline. But look, here she is. Um, <laughs> so they... They often kick me in the pants in a very real kind of way. Um, and yeah, that accountability piece is just so huge. And then, you know, having, having this intergenerational farming experience has been beautiful and isn't usually a part of my life. I've been kind of a solitary creature for a very long time. And so, you know, sometimes it's challenging and sometimes I don't understand why kids make the noises that they make. That's because they're small humans. That's what they do. But like my head can't quite get around it. And I'm learning great lessons that 
help me, right? Like the patience I learned there helps me be more patient with plants and with growing and with making medicine and with my own setbacks. And so it's, yeah, it's just so tremendously powerful. And I know you know this, but just for everybody who's listening, like don't farm alone. It's the worst thing possible. Do not grow alone. (laughs) Even if your farming operation or your garden endeavor, whatever it is you're doing, even if it really is just your baby, let people in there with you. It's so valuable and rewarding and also just so much easier. Yeah, I have learned this the hard way (laughs) Um, with, you know, like you, I was always very kind of solitary and, you know, my partner is uninterested in, in farming. This is definitely like all me, but this season I had two different people that listened to the podcast that were local reach out to me and ask, you know, Hey, do you need any help? And like, they have their own jobs and lives and, but they just wanted to be, you know, outdoors a little bit. And so even just getting, you know, a few hours a week, the time that I spend out there with other people, it's so different than when I'm out there by myself. And just, there are so many tasks that having a second set of hands to help you with, like, you know, running fencing or something, it just makes, it's a phenomenal difference. It's, it's huge. I can't even begin to describe it. So yes, get help if you're starting a farm. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, I want to be respectful of your time because I know this has run um, a bit longer than I think I initially (laughs) told you, Um, but (laughs) you kept your promise of enjoying talking. So I do have like two last questions. This has been so great. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about just looking down, you know, a few years down the road about where you hope to be in terms of, you know, the farm or the collective or the market anywhere you want to talk about that. Just like, is there sort of like a long-term vision that you're working towards that you would feel comfortable sharing here? Yeah, for sure. I would love to eventually be teaching out on the farm. What I really hope to, to sort of put in the center of things eventually is much more talking to people about plants and medicine um, in the environment of the farm. So I'm really hoping that that's something that I'm doing more and that we've sort of built out a structure that supports that. I think, you know, much further down the road, I'm, I'm really aiming for intentional community and living on a farm with these folks and maybe some other folks. But I think in the, you know, the three to five year realm, it's to establish a place where I'm teaching and talking about medicine making and plants and the farmers that I work with have a space to teach and talk about the things that are, you know, passions for them and that really move them. Some of the farmers are like rabbit and chicken farmers. And so we have so many skills among us to really bring forward and talk about with folks. I know that we have a strong goal to eventually be providing some community garden space to folks and doing Um, on a much more small and intimate scale, more mentoring and incubation work for folks who need that support to get started growing and perhaps making value-added products and selling things. I really would love to have a farm stand on our farm so that, you know, because we're on an island where we're farming and it's a very insular community and those folks love to show up for each other. So I want to make it easier for them to show up for us and to see what it is that we we make and put out there with our, our love and our, our effort. Um, so those are some sort of things I think about happening on the farm site itself. And I really, you know, with the market, it will be bittersweet to think about in the long term, but I hope to put myself out of a job. I think if I do things really, really well, 
then eventually I am working with and supporting other farmers market managers of color because there are so tremendously few of us. And I think, you know, in the market waters that I'm swimming in, I am probably the only black market manager for, for a huge geographic while. So, you know, hopefully long-term, I put myself out of a job because I've got a vibrant and bustling community of market managers of color who are like, yeah, we got this, go, go run your farm, you know? So I think that's what I want to see happen there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's amazing. That's a beautiful long-term goal. And there's a lot of that that I share as well, with like teaching and building community. You actually just mentioned this, which was a question I had skipped over, um, but that, yeah, you had mentioned that you're often the only Black person in the room when you're doing these, you know, market manager meetings. And so I was just wondering, like, what has that been like to navigate for you? Have you gotten any negative pushback for, for the market? So from the market manager community, there's just been a a lot of support for the market. It has been a little challenging to navigate sort of the the meeting and association, you know, farmers market association culture, because right now with the sort of national discourse on race that's going on, they're going inside and, and unpacking a lot of work about racism in the market environment. And it can be a little rough for a Black person to be present when folks who inhabit the dominant power position are, are in learning mode. So I think there are a lot of folks trying right now really hard to learn and to change sort of the, the status quo and the behaviors that have happened at market for a really long time. But I'm also trying to keep my eye on, you know, the long term and know that everyone is going to benefit from the work that they're doing. Even if that means there are a lot of Zoom calls I jump on and go, oh, okay, I don't think I need to be here right now. But thank you all for doing this work and let me know when the next meeting is. (laughs) Um, So lots of support from market manager community. Some consumers, I, I definitely get social media comments, you know, relatively often that, say, you know, like, BIPOC market, like, that's, that's reverse racism, or BIPOC market, that's, you know, that's just a lawsuit waiting to happen, but I pretty much just let them go on by. <laughs> yeah, that's probably for the best. You're not going to win them, win that argument <laughs> no. with strangers <laughs> on social media. But yeah, that's a beautiful, you know, long-term vision that you have for the farm and, and for yourself. That's really beautiful. Final question before we wrap up would just be, is there any advice or anything that you would like to share for any aspiring farmers that are listening out there other than don't farm alone? <laughs> uh, you know, I know for some people it's going to sound really woo, but I'm still going to say, talk to plants, have conversations mm-hmm. with plants. And when I say have conversations with plants, right, like interpret that the way that makes sense for your own worldview and how you understand things. For some people, it really is a like, I hear the plants telling me things. I, I am kind of one of those people. For other people, it may be just some sort of vague impression. And I think for some people, it's just an opportunity to meditate. You know, they are your own thoughts. You're getting them back in some other fashion. But talking to plants, I think, is something that all farmers would benefit from doing and, you know, figure out what the dialogue is that you need to be having on the land and the plants that you're working with. But talk to plants, see what happens. Yeah, that's incredibly well put. And yeah, sometimes or oftentimes, those are the best conversations I have all day. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But this one was pretty good. I super appreciate you. I have enjoyed talking to you so much, Shiny. For those listening, please make sure you check out the 
the links in the episode notes for Scrapberry Farm and go follow Shiny. Um, if you're in Portland, Oregon, make sure you check that out. Also check out the Come Through Market and we'll have all of Shiny's other info and links in the show notes. So thank you so much for being with us, Shiny. Thank you, Sarah. Wow. Okay. We covered so much in that. Thank you again so much to Shiny for her time. Um, This is a busy time of year for farmers. So I really appreciate her being able to step away and give that much of her time to us to talk about so many amazing topics. Please do check her out on social media, Scrapberry Farm on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again, Shiny. I hope you all enjoyed that. We will have more interviews coming your way. Uh, Maybe not necessarily this long all the time. Sorry if that ran a little over. One of my past traits as a former teacher is always over-preparing, so my question list was maybe a little longer than it needed to be for an episode. Anyway, I hope y'all enjoyed that. We'll talk to you again soon, and as always, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.